Morning. Morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that uh, you will be with us today, enlighten our minds. May your angels join us, your spirit join us, and may we be closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Our lesson this week is called Living by Faith. And it's lesson number 11 in our quarterly Proverbs. And it says the memory text, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. What do you think this means? Safe from what? Is it talking about physical safety? Were the apostles, other than John, failing to trust the Lord? The apostles, other than John, did they fail to trust the Lord? Were they kept safe? How about being safe from a fear-driven relationship? Mm, I like where you're going with that. See, there's no doubt that God can and sometimes does intervene to protect us physically. Most of the time that doesn't happen. But I know a lot of people will take passages like this and they'll claim them as a promise and apply them perhaps where they're not really intended. Well, what do you think fear... What do you think about the fear aspect being a snare? What does fear do to a person when you become afraid? What does it do to you? Okay, number one, fear impairs clear thinking. It absolutely does. The more fearful you get, the less clear you can think. It impairs um, actual brain function of the prefrontal cortex where you do your reasoning and think. That's why they train soldiers over and over again because in combat, when you become very fearful, you, you freeze, you can't think. So people go back to their training. So number one, it impairs thinking. What else does fear do? Produces self-protective behavior. There's the big one. Fear turns your mind's attention towards self. How do I protect self? How do I promote self? How do I advance self? It's, it's self-reference. That's what fear does. It drives us to become self-referenced. Thus, fear is a snare. See how fear is a snare? See, I've, I've had this discussion with survivalists or... or um, uh, people. Pardon? <laughs> People who believe in an evolutionary origin of things, and they will say fear is adaptive. Fear drives us to, to protect self and survive, but it, it's actually not true. Fear actually interferes with function. I give this example. If I had a balance beam up here on the floor, and it was actually on the floor, it's four inches wide, most of us could walk that balance beam on the floor without any trouble. Maybe you have to take your shoes off and do it barefoot, but you could do it. We take that same four inches and put it 100 feet in the air with no net, and now ask you to walk across it. What would most of you do? If you did it and didn't crawl across it, you would probably fall. What happened? Same four inches. Your ability is clearly you can do it. What changed? Fear. You became afraid, and when you fire your fear circuits, you actually impair motor movement. And you actually cause yourself to fall. I don't know if you ever saw on the History Channel the building of the Empire State Building, the, the history of the building, and the, in the video they showed of it. And back then there wasn't OSHA to give work safety standards. And they had these you know, 12-inch I-beams that they're swinging thousands of feet in the air. And these iron workers are just walking on them, jumping from one to the other. Sometimes while they're swinging, they're walking on them and jumping from one to the other, thousands of feet up. Yes, they, they had, I can't remember how many people fell and died, but most of them had, had uh, what I understand was Mohawk Indian descent. And the Mohawk Indians don't have any fear of heights. <laughs> <laughs> Genetically. Genetically. 
Yes. And, and so, do you have to have a fear of heights, though, not to jump off of buildings? You don't have to be afraid of heights to know not to jump. And it was, fact, the lack of fear that made them the best workers at the heights. So this idea that fear is adaptive, it's not true. Fear is an infection. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. It's exactly, it's an infection that is a snare to us. It's exactly right. So, it, it fear leads us to foolish decisions. In my book, I have the, the story of the chemistry teacher out in Texas who <clears throat> was behind in her car payments and two students who were failing her class. And, and because she didn't want to have her car repossessed and have a bad rating on her credit score, she made a deal with the two students that if they steal her car and burn it, that uh, she would give them passing grades. And so they did. And they were all caught. Now they all, and they all went to prison. And what, were those, what was the motive for that? It was self-protective. It was fear-based decision-making. How do you draw the line between fear and judgment? In other words, good judgment would say, I'm probably not going to jump four feet from one beam to another 800 feet in the air. Well, good judgment. It depends on one's abilities and one's confidence in one's abilities. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be a good judgment for me to do that, I can tell you. <laughs> but, you, know, you know, some people, though, have, have better skills and better abilities. It wouldn't be a good judgment for me to try to ski down a black ski slope. Okay, one of the double diamond blacks. That would not be good judgment for me to try that. But I'm fine on a blue. Fine on a blue. But it would be poor judgment. But other people go down those blacks and it's no big deal for them. How about, how many people lie because they're afraid of how someone will react if they tell the truth? They fear the consequence. So they lie to protect self. You see children do it with their parents all the time. Why do children lie to their parents? Because they're afraid. They're afraid. In relationships, what happens in a fear-based relationship? Afraid of rejection, afraid of abandonment, afraid of not being loved, afraid of being alone, afraid that no one will care for you. What happens in those relationships? Self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, you become more controlling. You become more vigilant, watching the other person. You're checking up on them. You're more jealous. You're more controlling. You're more restrictive. And what does those, those types of behavior do to love? It destroys love, and the relationships ultimately crumble and crash. So fear is, a, fear is a snare. What does trust? Genuine trust. You're afraid, but you trust. So a child is afraid. How many have seen it? A child is on a diving board, and they're, and they're terrified to jump, but their daddy or mommy's down in the water and say, okay, I'll catch you. What does trust do to the fear? It overcomes it. This is, the, this is what it's talking about when I trust in the Lord. But trust for what is the point? A few months back, I was talking to a very nice Jewish psychologist who's written several books and has his own foundation, doing great works with young men. And he told me, as I was, because I was interested in his mindset about God and how the Jews think about God, and you know, because our perspective and so forth. And he told me he doesn't believe in God, and that most Jews that he knows no longer believe in God. That to be a Jew is not to have a belief in God or have a faith in God. To be a Jew is to be a member of the tribe. And to be belong to the traditions and the, and the festivals and the practices and the foods and the culture. That's what it means to be. But he said after World War II and the Holocaust, most Jews gave up a belief in God. This is what he told me. And they gave up belief in God because they trusted. Do you know anyone who has trusted God, but then life didn't turn out as they expected, and they either blamed God or rejected the idea of God? What does it say about their trust in God? See, it suggests to me people who have the idea of God 
They believe in the idea of God, but don't actually know God. It suggests to me the pagan view of God, that God is a being who they trust has power, and they trust will do what we want him to do when we do the right ritual, say the right prayer, claim the right promises, use the right words, pray in the right name, confess the right sins, and have the right amount of faith, then we get what we want out of our God. This is what they're trusting. The so-called trust is not trusting a being you know and love so much you would put your life in his hands and say, hey, the outcome is in your hands. I trust you. Here's what I'd like, but you know what? I know you, I know you can see a thousand things and more I can't see. So it's okay. I'm telling you my desire, but I trust you to work it out to what's best. No. One of the things that's hard is when someone's always saying, God's in control, God's in control, God's in control, and then something terrible like the Holocaust happens that appears that God may not be in such control after all, that allows a lot of people to lose faith. And this comes through that imperial law thing again, when you have an imperialistic dictator, and they, they, they don't use the word dictator, they use sovereignty. Okay, the sovereignty of God. And they don't understand that he is in control of his design for life, his laws of the universe that he sustains. One of those laws is the law of liberty, the law of freedom. That's what, and he's in control of his self-control, and he controls the universal laws upon which life and the fabrics of the cosmos is constructed to operate. And within those laws, the law of liberty operates, which is one of his laws, which means he leaves us free to make our own decisions. This type of trust that I just described a moment ago is the trust that we have in a tool, in an appliance, in a machine. We put our quarters in and we push the right buttons in the right sequence and expect to get the right candy when we... And, and, and we expect to write the candy when we claim that is our rights because we paid the price or, or used the right blood quarters. Right? But when the machine doesn't work, we put our quarters in, and it doesn't give us what we want, what do we do? We attack, attack the machine. We kick the machine. It's broken. We give up on the machine. This is how many people have a relationship with God. Just like this. He is there to go dispense what we need. If we, though, do the right rituals, claim the right prayers, say the right words, and you see it, this theology is out there. The name it, claim it theology. It's out there. The appeasement theology. Claim, you know, it's, it's claim the right Bible promise theology. That was the ABCs of prayer growing up, right? Yeah. 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 This is not trust. This is not faith. This is a false faith we get through that penal substitutionary theology that comes. This is where it comes from, believing the imposed law construct. Genuine trust is in God, is surrendering self into his hands and trusting him with the outcome. Even if it's painful, trusting God has a better plan. This is Joseph trusting when he was sold as a slave for 13 years as a slave. This is Job when he was going through his trials, had 10 children die. Parents, think about that. 10 children died. Same day. Daniel. Guys, you know Daniel was not only taken captive, he was made a eunuch. They, they tend to drop that. Stephen, when he's being stoned, what did he say? Father, it's all good. Don't put it against their account. I trust you. This type of trust only occurs when we actually know God, have a heart connection with him, understand his character and his methods of love. 
Those who trust God like this choose to be honest. They choose to uh, respect others' freedoms. They choose to live in truth. They choose to give rather than take, even if they're physically abused like the apostles were. First paragraph says, So many voices call to us from many directions. How do you know what is right and what is wrong? The answer is found in God and his written revelation. We must learn to rely on God and to obey his law. The rest will follow by itself. And this is a perfect opportunity for me to put a promo in for our upcoming seminar on March 21 at the Hamlin Community Church from 2.30 to 6 called God in Your Church, Preparing People to Meet Jesus. And the first talk of the three talks is Growing Up in Christ, the Seven Levels of Moral Decision Making. How do you tell what's the right decision? How do you tell what's right and wrong in, in any given circumstance? What method do you use? We'll explore that in great detail and give lots of examples. And then the second one is becoming a spokesperson for God, telling that that get great controversy story from beginning to end, putting the pieces together, showing how throughout the landscape of human history, how these all fit into a larger landscape, and then answering the difficult Bible questions, including why raise the wicked only to kill them in the end? Why raise them to kill them again? What's the truth about hell and consuming fire? Homosexuality in the, in the Christian church and, and so forth, and many other questions. And I hope we've got a lot of flyers. I've got them out of the seats. We've got some out there. I hope you'll take some and share them around the community. And let's, let's, we're going to make a DVD, new DVD set of these. And these DVDs, we're going to, um, uh, distribute or reveal or launch, what do you want to call it, at the, at the General Conference in San Antonio. And then after that, we'll have them available for distribution um, through the mail and the other ways we give them out. So, so which, which lens do you hear all this through? It says, seek first the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? I would say God's kingship in your own life is probably you are knowing him well enough and trusting him to allow him to be king in your life. What do you, what do you think about this answer that they gave us here, where it says the answer to knowing right and wrong is found in God and his written revelation. We must come to rely on God and obey his law. Didn't the Jews who crucified Christ have that exact standard? We... Have a law. This law came from, from God through Moses. Didn't they repeatedly cite to Christ over and over again that they have a law and they're going to rely on the law and we know what the truth is because we have a law and the law tells us what the truth is. It was their law. Why, why did they want him off the, the cross by sunset? To keep the Sabbath law. Was it the, was it the wrong day of the week? No. Was it Thursday they were worshiping on? No. Hmm. So while it is true, and I believe it is true, we must turn to God, and we must understand his law to know right from wrong, the lesson left out one critical key. What lens do you, what law lens are you using when you look through this stuff? Are you going to God and his law with the lens over your mind of imperialism, believing God's laws are the same type as created beings make? Simple rules without inherent consequence that require external authority to enforce and police? Or do you see God as creator, designer? His laws are the, the protocols upon which reality actually work and operate. The Jews 2,000 years ago viewed God's law as an imperial set of rules you had to keep. And notice what Jesus did with their law lens. I'm going to read to you from Matthew 5, 38 to 48. And here, notice, he contrasts their law 
with his law. And I want you to notice, if you're thinking, not just hearing what he's saying, he's contrasting imperialism with design law. Watch this. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. What did Jesus say you need to be in order to be a children of your Father in heaven in this passage? Keep the right rules, go to church on the right day, pay the right amount of tithe, eat eat the right foods, dress in the right clothes. What did he say? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Love people. See, the law of love is how life is designed to operate. It's the principle of giving, beneficence. It's the protocols on which reality exists. We must stop this, this human law lens, this idea that justice means retribution. Justice means imposed punishment. It's not. We must stop teaching God as the source of inflicted pain and suffering for sin. We have to come back to seeing him as the creator. So what does it mean that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous? What does that mean? Exactly. His laws don't make a distinction between people. Whether you're good or bad, the laws of physics still work. The laws of nature still work. Crops still grow. Sun still shines. He still loves you. His love is constant. It doesn't change. And, and that, that is a truth that can lead people into a misunderstanding when they hear that truth of God's constant love through imperial law lens. When they hear that truth of imperial law lens, it sounds like this. There's nothing I can do that can make God love me more. And there's nothing I can do to make him love me less. So therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. You see, because the problem in sin in imperial law lens is doing bad things and getting in trouble with the one in charge. But when I realize his love is constant and his love never changes, I can't get in trouble with him. And there's truth in that. But under the imperial law lens, they misunderstand that the problem with sin was never getting in trouble with God. The problem with sin was changing yourself, deviating from his dying, searing your conscience, warping your character, harboring selfishness in your heart so that you are actually corroding the very uh, abilities God has given you to be reconciled to him. You're distancing yourself from him. You're destroying your own soul. This is what happens. So yes, his love is constant. But it's important we see that constant love through design law, not imperial law. It says, seek first the kingdom of God, which is true. We t- talked about that. Um, what of this sentence? We can learn to trust God only by living a life of faith. Did anyone kind of, their brain go, wait a second. We can learn to trust God only by living a life of trust in God. <laughs> See, I think it would have been more helpful if they've just written it this way. As we exercise our trust and faith in God, it will grow stronger. That's all they had to say. 
And that's true, because it's one of God's design laws. One of his design laws, strength comes from exertion. If you want to get strong in anything, you must exercise it. Physical exercise. You want to get strong in music, you've got to practice. You want to get strong in your medical skills, you've got to, you've got to practice. You want to get strong in, in language skills, you've got to practice. Exercise something, it grows, it, it expands, it gets stronger. But if you don't use it, you lose it. It atrophies, it shrinks. It's one of God's design laws. So it would have been fine if they said, if our faith grows... By exercising, trusting, using it. Sunday's lesson. What do you think of the title? Keep the law. Keep the law. Keep the speed limit. Yeah, good. I was going to say, so when you hear this, this way of saying it, which lens does it drag your mind toward? Doesn't the keep the law drag your mind toward the imperialistic way of seeing things, impose law? Yes. Might it have been more helpful to say, live in harmony with God's design? Would, would that have been more helpful? Do you hear it differently? Do you hear these two phrases differently? Keep the law, live in harmony with God's design. Do you hear them differently? From an elevated understanding, as we mature, a mature understanding, they're the same thing. They're synonyms. Because that's what it means to keep the laws, to live in harmony as God's design. But that language, keep the law, tends to pull us down into the human way of thinking of the word law. Which one draws you in to be more likely to want to participate? Keep the law, live in harmony as God's design. Keep the law sounds punitive. Live in harmony sounds peaceful, inviting. Yes, and so if you look at functionally... Keep the law sounds like a directive, a command, which sounds coercive, which sounds makes the feel, plants the seed as if your liberties are being undermined, which violating the law of liberty incites a desire to rebel. I'm not doing that. But live in harmony with the design sounds like wisdom shared and an invitation to participate. Yes, Wendell. Seems like external versus internal. It's almost as if keep the law, I'm going to get the law and put it in a box. I'm going to do something external to myself. It's not something that's part of me. Or external motivation versus internal. Well, it sounds yeah. like force versus choice. And it sounds impossible. Yes. It also sounds... Yes. This, go ahead. I was just going to say it also sounds like multiple choice. You know, all we have to do is get our little group together and decide what we think the law is or what faith is. And that's and, the God that we worship. And this idea of, of human construct of law, a bunch of rules or, or, or protocols, is one of the reasons Christianity is fragmented in so many different groups, 34,000 different groups, because we each have decided these are the right laws or these are the right protocols or these are the right definitions, and, and then we require everybody to ascribe to our 28 fundamentals or, or whatever they are, okay, because we've defined them the right way. Yeah, it's exactly right. Over here. But if, you're, if you believe the lie about God, I could understand a person fear-based saying, no, I, I just tell me which of these boxes to check. That's right. And, and hallelujah, I won't get it wrong. So when you believe the lie about God and you see him as an imperial dictator, where's your security found? Your security is found in a legal payment made to protect you from God rather than in a trust relationship with God. Notice the big difference. 
This is where people who hold that legal view of God, they get real upset with our class sometimes because it scares them, because they have such an arbitrary and ugly view of God. The idea of him not being paid, not, not having somebody pleading with him not to hurt them, terrifies them because they believe he has to, in justice, use his power to torture and kill them. Well, if you spent all your life living that way, and it hasn't exactly been fun, it's kind of hard to look back and say, you mean that's not the way it is? <laughs> but it, 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 for many people have told me it's not, it may be hard at first, but when they get their mind around reality, it's like freeing. It's like a weight falls off them. Shackles have been released. It's like, wow. It's like walking on water. But they've got to allow themselves to. Yes. Second paragraph says, what made the people of Israel different from the other nations was not so much their way of thinking or even their spiritual and abstract theological views. It was their concrete choices in life about, amongst other things, food, rest, natural environment, and their relationships with neighbors and family that made them holy or set apart from all the other nations. And ideally, those choices were to center on the law and the principles found within it. You know, my friend, my Jewish friend would agree with this. It has nothing to do with God. Not do with theology to be a Jew. It only has to do with the culture concretely choosing to practice these types of things. Well, what do you think about this idea of concrete choices in life? Does God want us to be concrete in our thinking and simply follow a list of rules and behaviors to what we eat and drink and dress and worship practices to set us apart from the world? That's his goal for us to be the, to follow this concrete list of rules. It misses the point of what actually makes us holy. It's not the things that we do that make, that make us holy. It's God in us. Well said. Did you all hear that? Yeah. It's not the list of things we do. It's God in us that makes us holy. It's that relationship. The problem with concrete thinking, concrete decisions, what's the problem with following a list of codes, of rules, of rituals, of lists? What's the problem? It actually damages the minds and impairs development and transformation and actual recreation and holiness to be concrete in our practices. I didn't say not to have some practices, to be concrete in our practices. Over here, yes, somewhere. Can you address verse 9 of chapter 28? Is it? Read it, read it for us. That, well, this is the King James. It says, He that turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Um, anybody want to read that in English? No. Obey the law. God will find your prayers too hateful to hear. Okay, so what does that mean? I'll give you a simple example. I have a patient who prays regularly for healthy lungs. And I say to her, have you quit smoking yet? And she says no. She prays, but she's violating the laws of health. So she's praying for God to actually overrule his own design protocols for reality and change reality, make a reality in which cigarette smoke is actually healthy to the lungs. This is an abomination to pray this way. And so people will pray, I pray for a healthy marriage while I'm having an affair. They do. I have patience to do this. Okay, that's what that text is talking about. Because it's talking not about a list of rules. It's talking about God's law, which is the law upon which reality operates. You're praying for him. It would be like jumping off the Empire State Building. And as you're falling those seconds to your death, you pray to God for good health and a long life. <laughs> That's an abomination. It's ridiculous. It makes God out to look stupid. Or he looks like he didn't answer your prayers. Exactly. It also takes your dependence away from God and places it on your own level of 
thinking or reasoning, whatever that may be, or whoever you place your confidence in as the leader or the person who who sort of imposes or dictates these laws. So we're back to God being a vending machine. We're going to do what we want, and then when we get in trouble, we'll pray for God to fix it all. Sort of Santa. Yeah. So this idea of this concrete thinking, people take this approach to concrete application of rules often become an obstacle to God's plan and the movements of God's Spirit. Yes? You may not want to get into this, or you you may have a good answer for it. I don't know. With that said, speaking of concrete laws, why the Ten Commandments? It's pretty straightforward. The Ten Commandments were added because of the need of a sick humanity in fact, I think we have it in our lesson a little bit down. Um, it be a rather rudimentary expression of love. Let, 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 let's put that on pause because it's coming down in the loads here just a, a little bit. Let me finish this point and we'll come back to that. Um, so examples of this concrete type of thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live this health message even if it kills me. <laughs> Haven't you known somebody like this? And they get gaunt and they lose weight and they get sicker and they get sicker because they're not going to eat anything that's not on the list. They've got their list, and they're going to do it concretely, not thoughtfully. Not understanding how life actually works. Refuse life-saving medicines because it isn't on the, on the approved natural remedy list. Refuse to buy an engagement ring so we spend $10,000 on a watch instead. <laughs> you guys have seen this, haven't you? <laughs> Concrete operating. It's on the list. We can do it. Believe ritual has the ability to save. Thus we argue over which ritual is the right one. If you don't do the ritual our way, then you're, you're condemned. You can't go to heaven. Believe there's power in the blood. Rather than realizing the blood is symbolic and the power is in the one who shed his blood. Believing we are right with God when we attest to the right list of doctrines, thus becoming thought police and set up tests of orthodoxy rather than tests of character, i.e. giving people opportunities to to love others. So listen to what God said to those concrete thinkers that the lessons seem to suggest set them apart and made them holy by their rituals and their dress and their days of worship. Listen to what he says, Isaiah 1, 11 through 15. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and the lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. But wait a second. Who told them to bring burnt offerings? Where'd they get those instructions? From whom? Uh, through Moses. But God, yes, God. That's right. Uh, who told them about the Sabbath? Who told them about the feast days? Who told them about the festivals? Who told them about the new moons? Who told... Uh, where'd they get all this? Where'd this list of stuff come from? Aren't they doing just what the lesson said? They're, they're set apart. 
they're holy because they're doing it. No. Notice the key thing that it said in here. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Right in the text. Stop doing this without thought. Stop following a concrete list of rules and behaviors, thinking there's some merit in carrying out the rule. These are just simply tools. They're teaching tools to get you to think. You should be asking, what does this mean? And, and contemplate the deep meaning that is, is the reality behind the symbol, the metaphor. They weren't doing the wrong rituals. They weren't worshiping on the wrong day. They weren't wearing the wrong clothes. They weren't eating the wrong foods. The problem was they weren't thinking. Their brains were turned off. Thus it says, a few verses below what I just read in Isaiah 1, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow, they're red like crimson, they'll be made like wool. It is reasoning with God that we experience cleansing from sin. Because it's in reasoning with God that the distortions and misrepresentations and misunderstandings that cause a barrier to us knowing God are removed and we experience the truth of who God is and the truth will set you free. And when, and when we, the truth sets us free, we come back to a, a relationship of trust. Wow, I see who you are. I experience you. I trust you. And we open the heart and trust. The Spirit comes in and regenerates and transforms. The rituals are meaningless unless they're leading you to comprehend and understand and come back to a trust relationship with God. Yes? Also, when the focus of that becomes, look how good I'm doing it, and it becomes self-focused instead of focused on the God uh, behind that. Well said. They were doing it for the wrong reasons, evidently. Yes, they were doing it for the wrong reasons. Think, thinking that by performing the ritual, they're, and this is very pagan. This is very pagan. Back to that vendor machine God. We offer him the virgin sacrifice, the firstborn for our sins of our body, well, bring the right, whatever, and then the God is at peace and he'll give us what we want. This is how they approached all the rituals God gave in the Old Testament. Now, I found this this week in my studies. It's a historical reference coming from a Sabbath school worker, April 1, 1889. When Jesus spoke to the people, they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes had labored to establish their theories, and they had labored to sustain them and to keep their influence over the minds of the people by endless repetition of fables and childish traditions. The loftiest models of public instruction consisted largely of going through heartless rounds of unmeaning ceremonies and in the repetition of frivolous opinions. How much of religion today would fall into this category? The teaching of Jesus inculcated the weightiest ideas and the most sublime truths in the most comprehensible and simple manner, and the common people heard him gladly. This is the kind of instruction that should be given in our Sabbath schools. Light Heaven's light must be reflected from Jesus, the wonderful teacher, and the souls of the children and youth must be illumined with the divine glory of his character and love. Notice what the focus is to be. Illuminating people's minds with the character and love of Jesus. Thus the children may be led in beautiful simplicity to the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. I thought it was profound when I read it, so that's why I put it in here. Several lessons from this perspective, this passage. It is damaging to indoctrinate people into meaningless rituals, ceremonies, theories, creeds, fundamental beliefs. It's damaging. That's why Jesus said, you search the world over to find a convert, and when you find one, you make him twice the son of hell. 
twice the son? Because before you found him, he didn't know God, so he still had to come to know him. That's, that's one obstacle to get over. But now that you found him, you filled his mind with a bunch of distortions and false theories and false understandings. So we not only have to get him to know me, we've got to undo and get through all the distortions you've. We have two barriers to get through now. He's twice the son of hell. Religious leaders tend to do this in order to maintain their power base and control over people who surrender their thinking to others. Paul says in Romans 14, every person is to be fully persuaded in their own mind. As I've said in here over and over and over again, I'll say again today, I am not here to tell anybody what to think. I'm here to stimulate every person to engage their own thinking, to evaluate the evidence for themselves, to weigh it out, to understand it for themselves, to come to their own conclusion. Because it's the only way it's meaningful. Jesus didn't work in the way they work. He taught truths understandable to the people in simple terms, yet profound and life-changing. His method was the integrative, evidence-based approach. He used scripture, illustrated through science, nature, and examples, and real-life experiences. He integrated it all. That's how he did it. And made it. Oh, that's how it works. I see it. Life works this way. Our Bible classes are to use the same methods with an unwavering focus on God's character of love. When we do this, we participate in Jesus' plan to remove sin from the world. Notice his plan, according to that passage. He was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Do you know, if you look in, uh, there's a certain book called The 27 Fundamental Beliefs, page 111. It's 28 now, I have the old one, 27. But on page 111 in the old one, it says that Christ took away the barrier that stood between God and man and that he removed God's wrath. Page 111, you go check me out on this. In this view, the barrier between God and man is not our sin, it's God's wrath, and that has to be removed. It's called, and they call it propitiation, appeasement. But this is not what Scripture says. Jesus is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Amen. That's what separates us. So his wrath is against sin. Yes. Like your wrath might be against cancer. Yes, doctors. The cancer, I want Yes. Yes, well, says he, under design law, you understand a doctor is wrathful against bacteria and infections and, and cancers and things that are destructive to their patients. They're, they're wrathful and they want to destroy Ebola. Doctor wants to destroy Ebola, smallpox, polio. We want to destroy those things. Does the wrath of a doctor ever get appeased for those things? Ever? Even when the patients are well, do they become to, to have no wrath towards Ebola and, and polio? Or they always remain wrathful to those things? God's wrath is never appeased. That's never appreciated. But under the imperial model, though, the problem is not we have something that's destructive to us that God hates and wants to destroy, which is sin or deviations from his design. No, the imperial model is we've broken rules and he's offended and, we've, and he's outraged that we should deviate from his, his, his rules in such a way and he must inflict punishment upon us and he's very mad and he's got he's to be satisfied by punishment. And so Jesus took all that punishment and satisfied God's wrath. This is how it's taught, based on a wrong law concept. Monday's lesson, first paragraph. No matter how crucial it is to a life of faith, the law, the Torah, is not itself the source of life. On the contrary, the law points out sin and leads, and sin leads to death. Instead, what makes the Torah effective is that it comes from God. Apart from God, the Torah would be a legalistic creed that has nothing to do with its original intent. A life of obedience to the law of God is related to a life with God. The Torah does not replace God. It is just a teacher that, according to Paul's analogy, leads us, the students, to their master. 
So a question earlier, why the Ten Commandments? Of course, the law talked about here, the Torah, is the Ten Commandments, the laws of Moses, and so forth. Is the law spoken of here, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, the same law in the form that it was in heaven and in Eden? It is not. The law that's spoken of here was added later. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, Paul says, We know that the law is good, the Torah is good, if one uses it properly. We also know the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels and the ungodly and the sinful and the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers or murderers, for sexually, sexually immoral, for those who practice homosexuality the slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he has entrusted to me. What law is the law that is not for the righteous? Is the law of love for the righteous? Yes. Is the law of truth for the righteous? Is the law of liberty, the law of worship for the righteous? Is the law of gravity, the laws of health, the laws of exertion for the righteous? You see, every one of God's design laws are for the righteous. So he's not talking about the law of love, the law of liberty, the laws of physics. These are not the laws that are not for the righteous. Then which law is not for the righteous? The Ten Commandments. He said it earlier when he said it seems like a pretty rudimentary expression of God's character. Well, that's exactly what it is. It's a very basic expression of God's character for a people who could only understand a very basic. But when you're under imperial models of God, that list becomes uh, the the ideal highlight, and you think it's the highest evolution. And so so people will take comments like, it's a transcript of God's character. And they, which it is, but they don't understand the reality of it. And I've used this analogy in here before, but I'll use it again. We could take some white blood cells, take blood sample, or actually cheek swabs, and we could take and enlist your specific DNA code now. We have the ability to do that. Look at your own specific DNA. And we can actually print that out on paper. Your specific, unique DNA sequence. And once we had that on paper, I could say, this is a transcript of you. And we understand that. Okay, that's true. That's right. But looking at this transcript, do we know the sound of your laugh, the joy of your smile, the warmth of your hug? Do we know that looking at this transcript? No. See, the law of God is a living law. It's the law of love. And it can only be fully understood in a living being who's living it out. The Ten Commandments is a rudimentary transcript for people to understand it a little bit, but it is not the full revelation of God's law. Thus we read in... This is a couple of historic quotes. I really like them. Um, Patriarchs and Prophets 364. If man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after the fall, preserved by Noah, and observed by Abraham, there would have been no necessity for the ordinances of circumcision. And if descendants of Abraham had kept the covenant of which circumcision was a sign, they would never have been seduced into idolatry, nor would they have been necessary for them to suffer a life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved upon tablets of stone. And then First Samuel, excuse me, First Selected Messages, 233. The question of, in Galatians, when Paul says the law is added, many people argue back, well, is that, that's the ceremonial law, not the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments are eternal. If anybody's, again, reasoning, 
and thinking. You can look straight at the Ten Commandments and understand they're not eternal. They were added later because angels don't need a law about sins passing down from one generation to another generation, which are written specifically for human condition. Uh, angels don't have a law to honor their mothers and fathers. Angels don't have... Uh, the Sabbath law didn't exist until there was actually a Sabbath, which was made at the end of creation week of this planet, which was sometime post the angels in heaven. So here's this one. First... Select the message 233. I'm asked concerning the law of Galatians. What law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? And I'm reading this because this is for that group we talked about a couple weeks ago who, even though you reason through all the evidence and show from Scripture, they still need an Ellen White quote to believe. So here it is. <laughs> both the ceremonial law and the moral... Which laws in Galatians? I answer. Both the ceremonial law and the moral code of the Ten Commandments. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. In this Scripture, the Holy Spirit through the apostles speaking especially of the moral law. The Ten Commandments were added, in other words. There was a time in history past where they did not exist in this form. But the law of love was not added. The law of liberty was not. This is just design protocol. But I like this one the best. This is out of Faith I Live by, page 86. The law was not spoken exclusively for the benefit of the Hebrews. God honored them by making them the guardians and keepers of his law, but it was to be held as a sacred trust for the whole world. The precepts of the Decalogue are adapted. What's the word adapted mean? Made to fit. Adapted to all mankind. And they were given for the instruction and government of all. Ten precepts, brief, comprehensive, and authoritative, cover the duty of God, duty of man to God and his fellow man and all based upon the great fundamental principle of love. You know what it said? Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and your neighbor as yourself. God's law is not a new thing. It is not holiness created, but holiness made known. It is a code of principles expressing mercy, goodness, and love. It presents to fallen humanity the character of God and states plainly the whole duty to man. It's a codification of the law of love. And that's why the rich and ruler missed the boat. Exactly. He was focusing on the law and not the two basic commandments that the law represented. Exactly, exactly. So then it says, in, it has us read Galatians 3.24. So the law was our guardian or schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. That's Galatians 3.24. What law lens do you look through when you hear this language? We're brought to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Do you look through imposed law or do you look through design law? Looking through imposed law, it goes something like this. Well, we were in legal trouble under a death sentence. Uh, we, the, the law has revealed my, my terminal condition. No, the law has v- revealed my guilty state and, uh, and, my, and my condemned state, and, and I can't save myself. So God sent his son, who became my substitute, who took my death penalty upon himself, who paid the death penalty price, and now if I accept that death penalty, then I am declared to be righteous or set right, even though I'm not. But that's not justification under design law. That would, again, the metaphor I've used here a couple weeks ago. Imagine that uh, you've uh, grown up in a home where they taught you to brush your teeth regularly and the strict rules, but you were never given any reason to do it beyond if you don't do it, you're going to get in trouble with mom and you're going to get punished. So when you moved out at age 20 or 19, when you went to college, whenever, um, you never had any reason you quit doing it. You rebelled, rebelled against the strict upbringing you had. And at first, you realized, you looked around, I hadn't brushed my teeth in two weeks, and see, nothing bad happened. I knew that was a stupid rule. 
But then a few months down the road, you find yourself in terrible pain and you're suffering miserably. You realize things are not going well. (laughs) And so you call mom and dad crying in pain. I've really messed up. I haven't lived like you've taught me to live. I'm suffering. What do I need to do? And they tell you, well, the good news is there's a subject matter expert at our church that you can go speak to who will help you with this. And so you go to the subject matter expert and you cry in pain about how you've been living out of harmony with the way you were raised to live. And the subject matter expert tells you, that's okay. Your older brother came to earth and he brushed his teeth perfectly. And if you accept his toothbrushing in your behalf, then we can enter into your record in heaven, the record of perfect toothbrushing. Now, all you need to do is claim by faith that your teeth have been brushed perfectly. And if you claim by faith, then you will be declared to have perfect teeth. And you claim you believe it, and you leave with just as miserable a teeth as when you came. This is penal substitution theology, and it is a form of godliness that has no power. And this is why the church has the same amount of uh, domestic violence, child abuse, alcohol problems, pornography addiction as, as the world. There's no difference because they're given a solution that does not transform. Here's what real justification is. It says in Romans 4.3, it says, Abraham trusted God. And was recognized as righteous. See, our natural heart is in a state of distrust to God. We're, fear of, we're afraid of him. We don't trust him. And so we're trying to save ourselves all the time, trying to make some scheme, trying to sew together the fig leaves to cover up our own nakedness, so to speak. We're always looking out to, get a, to, to make our own way and make our own solution because we don't trust him. But Abraham trusted God. That's a fundamental change in heart attitude, which came first. And then when his heart was changed from distrust to trust, he was recognized as justified, which means set right, or put right, or rightified, or righteous. Because his heart, which was enmity to God, was now in a trust relationship with God, so he was set right in heart and mind. And in a trust relationship, he opens the heart, and then the Spirit comes in and takes everything Christ has achieved in our behalf that we couldn't achieve for ourselves, and reproduces it in us, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This is the process. I have several other points, and we're running out of time. I've got to go with this one. I've got to share with this, this one to you. That's a, another uh, historical quote I found from Review and Herald, March 8, 1887. All whom God has blessed with reasoning powers are to become intellectual Christians. Amen. If you haven't been blessed with reasoning powers, you're excused. <laughs> Because there are some that actually are excused. They really are. Okay? But if you've been blessed with reasoning powers, you're to become an intellectual Christian. They are not, they are not requested to believe without evidence. Therefore, Jesus has enjoined upon all to search the Scriptures. Let the ingenious inquire, and the one who would know for himself what is truth exert his mental powers to search out the truth as it is in Jesus. Any neglect here is in the peril of the soul. We must know individually the prescribed conditions of entering into eternal life. We must know what it is, the vo- what is the voice of God, that we may live by every word that proceeds out of his mouth. We cannot allow these questions to be settled for us by another's mind. Amen. This is huge. This is huge. Okay, I'm going to move on. Wednesday's lesson asks us to read Proverbs 29.13, and it says, The poor and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives sight to the eyes of both. And it talks about, in the first paragraph, how the rich and the poor are equal. Well, the rich and the poor have equal value and moral worth, but I think something much more profound is being stated in this passage. It's drawing our attention 
to design law. You see? The laws of physics and the laws of health, which govern eyesight and life, operate exactly the same whether you're rich or poor. Light doesn't travel at a different velocity if you're rich or poor. Your optic nerves don't work in a different way if you're rich or poor. Your neurotransmitters don't process information in your brain in a different way if you're rich or poor. You see, he gives the exact same design protocols for vision and life to the rich and the poor. God's laws cannot be changed based on one's status. But imposed laws can be changed based on status. Thus, when the church adopted the imperial law structure, God's laws are like human laws, status and wealth made a difference. There was a time in the Dark Ages when people could go and buy indulgences. And if you wanted to rape your neighbor's wife and murder your neighbor, you could go to the church and you could tell the the, the cardinal that what your sin was that you were planning to do, or maybe you wanted to visit a prostitute once a week, he would tell you, well, that's a pretty serious sin. That's a, that's a, that's a carnal sin. That's, that's uh, 5,000 gold pieces. Well, if you pay those 5,000 gold pieces before you do it, then you can go do it and not have it counted in your heavenly record book against you. These were indulgences, you see? And so when you have an imperial law system, it would be no different than today. Look at our laws. You pay a fine. See, if you get caught speeding, you just pay your fine, right? You're good. You're off the hook. You pay your fine. Move on. Some, some people calculate, you know what, I'll speed. I'll get caught about once every 18 or 24 or 36 months. That'll cost me 200 bucks. At 200 bucks every, every three years is worth speeding. I'll pay that fine. You see? But when you're under design law and you realize doing those things are warping the character, searing the conscience, corroding the soul, and every time you participate in it, no matter what you pay to the church, you are destroying yourself. You see, there's no change in the law based on status. Does this proverb mean that if, uh, if one is rich or poor, God determined it for them? I'm going to jump to Thursday's lesson because a couple points I want to hit. Um, the title is uh, Loving the Truth. How many, and I want you to understand, this is one of the character traits of the saved. Loving, the, they will be lovers of the truth. They have a heart that wants to grow in the truth. They want to understand it. They want to assimilate it as fast as their minds can comprehend it. But when Christ returns amongst the righteous who are winging their ways into heaven, amongst that group at his second coming, how many will know every detail of the Bible right? Nobody. It's not about having right conclusions of every detail, every fact in scripture. It's about having a heart that when you're uh, presented with the truth, you'll Assimilate it. You'll in, uh, uh, partake of it. You'll internalize it. You'll, you'll grow in it. You, you have a heart that wants, rather than the persons who have arrived at the truth, have thrown down their defensive walls, their stakes, we have defined what truth is. And when Christ tries to say this this way, he says, no, Lord, you've got that wrong. Because there'll be people like this. No, Jesus, you don't understand that scripture properly. I've gone to seminary. You haven't gone. Seriously. I've studied the original languages. You'll get this. They don't want the truth to come in because it'll unsettle the truth as they know it. Yeah. These are the people, and it says in Thessalonians, yeah. don't take my word for it, Second Thessalonians 2.10, the, the wicked, they're destroyed because they did not love the truth Amen. and thus be saved. 
And then I'm going to jump in closing to Friday's lesson because this is just so profound to me. How some, somebody, Friday's lesson, question one. It says, Russian author Leo Tolstoy, though raised in a Christian home, abandoned his faith for many years. When older, he faced a crisis. What did life mean, especially a life that will certainly end in death? Though he sought answers in all areas of knowledge, he found none there. He eventually realized that the only logical answer to the question of life and its meaning had to be found in faith, in something that went beyond logic itself. That is, his logic told him that the step beyond logic into the world of faith into, in order to get answers to the meaning of life. Why then is faith in Jesus really the most logical choice we can make regarding the meaning and purpose of life? Uh, yeah, this is incre- incredible to me as I'm reading this. Uh, I'm going to just read you something because they're suggesting that his logic told him I have to be illogical. They, don't, they, they must not have read Tolstoy. Because let me read to you something from one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I'm going to read you something from Tolstoy. This is two quotes from Ellen White. First one is Christ Object Lessons 258. In living for self, he has rejected that divine love which would have flowed out in mercy to his fellow man. Thus he has rejected life, for God is love and love is life. We understand the law of love, how things are built to operate. Every breath you take, give away carbon dioxide, plants come back oxygen to you, the circle of love built right into nature, law of love, okay? And then Desire of Ages 21, I don't have time to read it, but it basically says the same thing, it's in the notes. Here's Tolstoy. Love is life. All, everything I understand, I understand only because I love. Everything is, everything exists only because I love. Everything is united by it alone. Is that illogical? No, this isn't illogical. This is a blind faith. This is understanding reality and how reality is designed to work. But if you're under imperial rules, it doesn't make sense how loving others and giving the man who wants your, your shirt, you give him your coat too, walking the extra mile, turning the other cheek, this makes no sense whatever. Retribution, payment is justice. A gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a God of love and you've constructed the universe to operate in harmony with yourself. Oh Lord, we ask for your spirit of truth and love to be poured out into our minds, to help us understand, to displace the distortions in our thinking, to help us see you more clearly and to participate in all that Christ has achieved in our behalf. May the spirit come, take his, his victories and restore in us the, the right character of Christ that we might live for you and be a shining light in this world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.